0: Hello, how's it going? Welcome to 2021. Wow, we really are in the future. You are listening to Humans Aren't Robots, a series of conversations with the designers and creative thinkers uncovering the human elements of teams and modern business practices. I'm your host, as always, Sam Davies, and we are jumping back to a conversation I had last year at Pause Fest with Alistair Simpson. Alistair, at the time, was the head of design at Atlassian, based out of California, He is now the VP of design at Dropbox, Um, an interesting transition for him. Uh, I had a really great conversation with Alistair. I feel like we're aligned on a lot of ways we think about designers. One of the things that um, he had said during our conversation is that design is 90% communication and 10% doing the work. And uh, that really rings true with me. He's a firm believer in designers needing to step up further into becoming business leaders and understanding more about business practices as opposed to just being accountable for design work and creative. So we jumped in and talked about that, um, about leadership, about how as a leader within a business, you find mentors and you grow yourself, uh, which I found really interesting. Another great uh, quote from Alistair was, argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. We talked about debate within the workplace, which was really interesting. So uh, without further ado, let's jump in with Alastair Simpson uh, from Dropbox, previously atlassian, live from Paws Fest. Alistair, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Welcome Appreciate to uh, welcome to Melbourne.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to be back in Australia.
0: Yeah, it seems like. Um, uh, I've listened to a couple of podcasts you've done it seems like we did the opposite thing so I went over to the UK and, and worked over there and spent my time there and then came back to Australia and you've done the opposite you've gone well, to the States now but.
1: you've done your research that's right <laughs> I from UK went to Australia
0: and now live in America that's nice. right so yes how do you find uh, the difference between the three, the three places where, where, where does your uh, heart lie ah
1: uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. And I can say it's definitely not in England. Yeah. I can definitely say that. I haven't lived there for nearly 20 years. We can
0: leave it at that. Whereabouts did you grow up?
1: Uh, the south coast in the middle, in a small village in the middle of a forest called Sway, a few hundred people. Uh, so that's where I grew up and then went to university in London and then basically never really went home. I, after university, went traveling around the world and then ended up back in australia basically yeah so cool is,
0: what county in down the south
1: that's hampshire hampshire okay hampshire, the yeah. south coast
0: is actually quite beautiful like i um yeah i lived in london for six years but did a bit of travel around but there's there's some there's some beautiful spots
1: so there are some lovely spots like as i mentioned my uh family are in a little village in the middle of the forest it's literally forest that the king the king built hundreds of years ago to go hunting like this like into so this small village but then just a few miles down the road is the beach it's not like an Australian beach it's like a pebble beach yeah, uh, yeah sure. but, but my mum has a little cute beach hut which is about two meters by two meters squared that she loves and so she sits by the beach uh in the summer and so she it, it's nice it's, 18 it's degrees nice. With 18, that's, winds. that's right 18 <laughs> degrees onshore winds can't really get in the water but that's exactly right and so you know but it's nice to go home now and then and I took the kids home at Christmas and we went for walks in the forest and nice. my son John in puddles, literally head, like, head-to-toe puddles, um, but yeah, it's nice to go home. I it's went good. on
0: a very strange camping trip on Chesil Beach for, for about four days, we, we camped just off the back of the beach, we had no idea what, what, what to expect, so we, there, all the pebbles, there really wasn't anywhere very good to camp, and it's just very open at Chesil Beach, I have mean, we've been to Chesil Beach before, uh, just outside of Portsmouth, uh, yeah. um, Portsmouth? Portsmouth I, I think is close, so. that's close to where I yeah, got. Yeah, up Yeah, so in that area, but it's, uh, yeah, it was it was a disaster of a camping trip. <laughs>
1: I can imagine if you're camping on pebbles, then yeah.
0: Yeah, in the elements, it wasn't in summer either. So uh, anyway, (laughs) camping disasters aside, so now you're at Atlassian. Um, And so what's your role there?
1: So I'm head of design for about half of our product teams. So Trello, Confluence, the cloud platform, which underpins all of our products, and our growth team, so. Beautiful. And at pause, talking about uh, leading design teams? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So I was talking about the growth of the design team at Atlassian. when I joined, there was about 20 designers. There's now the design organization, so not just design, design organization, research, content design, product designers. It's probably about 230, 250. Uh, so in that time that I've been there. But I think just before I joined, there was only six designers. And so in about seven or eight years, it's gone from six designers to over two, like 200 in the design organization. So it's huge.
0: It's quite interesting. Um, you know, Obviously, the company has been around for you know, over 20 years now, right? Like 2002,
1: 2003? Yeah. So it was about 17 years, 17 years. Um,
0: so, so we use, we use, um, a, a bunch of your products in, in the studio, but it's interesting for us because a lot of us are designers, visual designers, um, like Trello, I think it was a good example, obviously, you know, prior to it being acquired by Atlassian, had a very, I suppose, the aesthetic was suited to, to people that were visual designers, whereas Jira, uh, probably five years ago, was probably not, um, you know, it was much more of a, a dev tool and, and built by devs for devs. Um, it's interesting breaking out of that and sort of going to a wider audience.
1: Yes. Uh, I think it's as well the, uh, you know, the, the consumerization of the enterprise is happening. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason that we've, we've scaled the design team at Atlassian is we, we recognize that you know we want to be an experience led company uh, we've just, uh, we just elevated my boss to the role of chief experience officer because we recognize that you know experience is really the thing that every human touches uh, as they're interacting with our products and that, that experience the expectation levels just go up and up and up and we want to invest in that and make sure that every user of any of our products, has the best experience that they can.
0: There's a maturity amongst just consumers, I think, around UI, right? Like, I, I think, I think. So, I talked to Dom Pim, who's the, the founder of Upbank, um, talking basically talking about the same thing about, about experience. About they are all about experience. They're building experiences. Um, banking is secondary to the experience. Um, but I think that. Obviously, you know, the, the younger generation being digital natives are just, you know, they've grown up with this stuff and it's so intuitive to them that if the experience doesn't feel intuitive, then they're, they're going to drop off. But I think all of us are, are becoming yeah more mature in the way we interact with digital platforms.
1: Well, that's right. I think, you know, your expectation goes up, right? Like if you're, if you're a user of a ride-hailing app like Uber or Lyft in the US, you know, it doesn't matter that it's a ride-hailing app. That's now your expectation of how simple some, an experience should be, because that that experience in and of itself has removed the need to hail a, hail a cab, not know when it's going to turn up, payment. It's compressed all of those things in into one kind of simple, intuitive user experience. And as I said, that's that's just now the expectation for not just ride hailing, for every, anything that you interact with and, and, touch, and touch. And it's a uh, you know trying to you know you mentioned that you know in your studio you you know your designers using using those uh using those our products but people are we often forget that people are the heart of um at the heart of every team is just humans and people right that's what obviously we're going to talk a little bit about today but it's people and humans and they don't really want to use any product right they're, they're trying to get a job done and they're trying to get that job done incredibly in fi- Effectively, and your tool is just a part of their day, you know. And they may dip into your tool, but then they may dip out of your tool into another tool. And so, understanding an experience end to end, agnostic of an individual product, I think is incredibly important.
0: Mm. And it is. um, We're talking about um, ambient computing yesterday. I don't know if you know that term, but this this idea of sort of you know these digital platforms. uh, almost involved in sort of you know most of our life now and and the ability to flow from one to the other seamlessly and and and, yeah you you almost want it to be transparent don't you it shouldn't be getting in the way
1: that's right and i think you know there's you know that in and of itself you know the future of teamwork is already kind of here there's a lot of people talking about you know uh, what does the future of teamwork look like, and what roles will be automated, et cetera, et cetera? But I think the future of teamwork is already here. What we need to be understanding is building in practices for individuals and teams so that they can cope with the modern demands of work. And I think that's incredibly important versus the, the tools.
0: So to touch on um, uh, on your talk today, so I mean that's an incredible feat growing a design team that quickly. So you were talking about sort of not creating silos, I believe, in, in Correct, your talk, yeah. so do you want to give us some of the uh, insights you were?
1: Yeah, some of the, I mean, you know, I'll, maybe I'll start at the end. The the end is, it's all about people and teams, right? And, and really at the heart of whatever you're building, however large or small you are in your scaling journey, it's all about the people building your products and the people who are using your products, your customers really. And then the teams I think is important because Certainly, I believe, and an Atlassian believes that at the heart of every great thing that's been built is a team, not an individual, right? And it's the team. And so you need to, the end is really, you know, when you scale, there's lots of different things in that scaling journey, but really at the heart of it are those people and teams, and you need to focus on them, internal and external. Um, some of the things that have been important, some of the things that I talked about, I talked about four different myths that kind of grow up and you know the first myth is that designers are only accountable for the design work and I think as you know as a designer we're we've come from a service world where we're a service we get requirements and we build some things to requirements whereas I think in the modern world especially as you're scaling design is now incredibly important and the experience is just as important if not more than any other aspect of of your product and so designers as well that comes with a heightened level of accountability and i I certainly believe that the myth is that designers are only accountable for design work the reality is that designers are business leaders and we have to understand the business and we have to understand how we make money we have to understand our customers we have to understand everything end to end and i think that's incredibly hard (laughs) but incredibly rewarding and but i think as you're scaling teams that's just the expectation now and what's
0: one of the um so in terms of I suppose educating and I don't know, feed it, but empowering designers to to have that um, that 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 sense of I suppose responsibility I mean, and accountability around their roles. How how do you go about doing that in, at Atlassian or yourself?
1: Uh, again, it comes back to practices. I think uh, you know. I think we're already in the future of teamwork, and that future of teamwork is distributed. I no longer work with people side by side as we're sitting here today. Most of the time I'm talking to people on a video call. And so you have that, uh, so you're in a distributed world. We are working cross disciplines. So we're working with engineers, product managers, designers, researchers, analysts, data scientists. There's more and more specialists coming in. And so we're already in the future of teamwork and so i think again it comes back to the practices that you need to build in to every individual that's in your team and it's not about i use the term practices deliberately you need to give people frameworks and practices so they can break down a problem and go deep on a problem not a rigid set of processes and efficiency things because you need every single problem that we solve at atlassian and also in many many growing tech companies and many many non-tech companies are, it's, uh, they're uncertain. There's, I've never worked on exactly the same problem at exactly the, you know, in my career. Everything is slightly different and we're in that world of volatility and uncertainty and we need to be building in resiliency and, and uh, giving people and individuals in our teams the frameworks and practices so that they can deal with that. You know, because you know that that's important. It's not going to come down to follow this process, then do this next thing, then mm. do this next thing.
0: I spoke to uh, Miles Orkin yesterday. I don't know. I don't know if you know him. Um, he, he was talking about. I saw his keynote today. It's similar things to you. We talked about that resiliency and um, there being potentially amongst you know, especially in, especially in you know where you are in, in California. You know, there's this. Um, People are going to school, and they have a visionary focus of I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go to Stanford, or I'm going to go study, and then I'm going to be at, you know, one of these tech giants. And probably from the age of twelve, thirteen, they have that vision in mind. And even though they're they're probably very good at you know studying and, and learning how they're going to get there, they maybe not the, the high level of resiliency isn't maybe there in terms of you know the the failures along the way or, or having some of that. Yeah, you know, I suppose that more human element of resiliency because they've just been so focused on this one goal.
1: Yeah, I think so. And and I saw. Uh I forget his name. He's the chief of staff for a Google Apps Speak this, mor- this morning and it was an excellent talk. He talks a lot about that, that you know, often, and, and I talk about that in my, in my talk as well, it's we often try to strip out the human side of teamwork and resiliency is one word, but we often try to ignore some of the emotions that, that come with it. And I don't think you necessarily can because we're all humans and we all bring a point of view and we want to bring our full selves to work. And that's important, right? Like it's an incredibly important aspect of how you wanna be able to show up in the company and, and it's just reality as well. It's, it's harder to, it's, hard, it's easy to say that than I think to actually
0: empower it because people do get caught up in, you know, especially in sort of your, your more traditional corporate world, right? Where, you know, they probably haven't had the uh, the kind of, you know, the values that have been baked into somewhere like an Atlassian from the get-go. Um, you're probably in a lucky position that have had that, the founders that had those kind of values to begin with. But it's harder to, I think, reverse engineer some of that stuff in existing businesses or you know, corporate environments. Um, but it does, I, I like what he was talking about. And I think you, it comes from the team as well, right? It isn't all just about leaders coming in and um, top down saying, here's how you should behave at work. You need to have feelings and that doesn't work.
1: It, it's, in, it's interesting, right? Like you, you really need both. That's the thing. You, you need your leaders at the top to be modeling the right behaviors that that they want to see in the organization. But then what often happens in that scenario is that when an individual in a team tries to model those same behaviors, then the rest of the organization rejects it because that's not how they've been taught to behave, right? And so you really need to model that from top down, but then also you need to give your employees that what I was just talking about, the practices and frameworks, to allow them to kind of change their behaviors and then all of that is kind of baked into making sure that you have this you know mythical what's not mythical but sorry you making sure that you have psychological safety in order to feel comfortable to share how something's made you feel or feel comfortable to fail in an organization and that's something I, I talked about in my talk where the project, the first project I ran at Atlassian, we essentially a twelve-month project. We were gonna, fa- we knew we were gonna fail after a few months, but myself and my boss Jürgen, we took that to the founders, to Mike and Scott, and and they thanked us for making a difficult business decision, and they helped work with us to reframe the problem and the goal that we were gonna go after, and so we felt comfortable, you know, being able to take that to them, and I think that's. That's what's really important is you know making sure that there is that safety to, to kind of share openly uh, if you're having a problem on a project or if you're going to fail, right? Like, and that's
0: powerful across like it's powerful on a human level for yourself to feel to, to be able to do that. It's powerful from a business perspective. It's probably saved them a lot of money from you know spending because that could have been a, a twelve month project. That I heard a great um, someone said the other day there was um, contractors that were installing a stobie pole had been knocked down or a street light had been knocked down somewhere in the city. Um, the contractors went and reinstalled it. And then got a, a job order. Which was just a glitch in the system. The next day to reinstall the the, stove, the reinstall the street light, but they just went out and did it. And they were, oh, it's just it was in the job order, so we just did it again. Right? That, that kind of mentality, I suppose, of not being able to say, well, this is this is wrong. You know, having the, I don't know. The, I suppose it's also at a level of accountability where you feel you care about the stuff you're doing and you don't want to fuck it up for the business.
1: That's right. I mean, and I think, uh, you know, you want. As you scale, I talked about this, as you scale, you you need to make sure that as you're scaling, everybody in your business feels like an owner and that they feel accountable in the right way, not in a pressurized way, but they feel accountable for the customer and for the solution. And if you can do that, then as you said, people will go above and beyond and they will deliver great outcomes for customers. And that comes, again, how do you instill that? Certainly some of the ways that Atlassian has done that is instilling our values in people, right? The day one of Atlassian, you, you get to understand our company mission, you know, to unleash the potential in every team, you get to understand our values and wh- how they came about and why they're important. And so something you just said, it's like one of our values is be the change you seek. And so if, if you see something that should be, you know, is wrong, feel accountable to go and actually try and fix that thing. And I think that's incredibly powerful um, within inside organizations.
0: It really is. And I think when you see it coming from, you know, uh, from a colleague um, within the business as opposed to from management, it's actually more impactful.
1: Oh, 100%. Like that's the thing where we're all, uh, none of us should be consumers of the culture. We should be creators of the culture. And, and again, whilst you know, we have an incredible value set at Atlassian, and we have incredible culture, but those cultures are really created by the, the people in the company. And, and we certainly, something we talk a lot about is, we don't want people to be culture fit, we want people to be culture add. Because you know, if you get just culture fit, ultimately you're going to get less cognitive diversity and less less difference in thought in the room and then you're going to get to narrower outcomes whereas what you actually want is you want to be having those difficult conversations you want people to feel comfortable speaking up so that you can have the difficult conversation up front and get to a much better outcome for your customer Um, and it's powerful when it when it works (laughs) and and debate is such
0: a is such a powerful tool in you know in the design process to have those dissenting points of view and to actually have those tough conversations early on in the piece while you while you while you are problem solving
1: i i think it's uh it's critical right if if you're not having if i'm ever in you know if if you're in meetings not meeting if you're in a creative session and everybody is agreeing with one another I get very nervous because because I'm I'm often wondering what what is wrong with, you know, not what is wrong with the people, what is wrong with the solution? Why is everybody agreeing? Like, what are we missing? Um, and that can be a sign of a problem where you don't have enough diversity in the room to actually, you know, unpick the problem in the right way. And that's certainly something that I think is important is if you feel like you've got to a solution very quickly, certainly in a design process, then... I always question it and we'll ask the design, ask the team to actually go back and really spend a bit more time in the problem phase to really unpack that because, you know, if we're all just agreeing, then there's probably something wrong. And as you said, you'll catch it later on in the project when it's yeah. much harder to undo.
0: You almost want to encourage people to be just at least play devil's advocate at that early stage, just to say, well, that's, there's gotta be something here.
1: That's right. And, and again, there's, you know, talking of practices and frameworks, we publish online I think called the Atlassian team playbook that's a free resource anyone can go download that I'm not like but it's it's a bunch of practices that we use internally uh, and so there's a there's a play in that playbook called disrupt and what that is is it's aimed at the creative process and when you're working through a problem you've got a really solid problem and you're maybe into solution phase the disrupt play you'll do a bunch of solutioning and then it will disrupt you, and it will give you a different divergent th- strand to pull on, because it's purposefully trying to stop you, like narrowing on a solution, because you want to open it up. And so, those practices are incredibly important and valuable in helping, you know, democratize design and helping everybody think more divergent early on in the process, uh, because that's what's, that's what people are going to. Uh, that's how you're going to empower a large organisation as you scale is teaching them those different divergent thinking methodologies, the practices, the frameworks that they can come back to when they have a different problem because, as I said, none of the projects and problems are ever exactly the same. Yeah, you can't just have that, you know, that, that roadmap that's just written
0: there. That's great that they're all publicly available too. Some of them are publicly available.
1: They're all, so they're all publicly available. I, I don't, last count, but this is a couple of years old. There was over 50 of them. Um, and, and they're, they range from, you know, how do you uh, how do you write a good problem statement? Yeah. Okay, to as I mentioned, disrupt, which is okay. You you've got a problem and a goal, and and you now want to go into solutioning. But then often in solutioning, people can narrow very quickly. And so disrupt is aimed at, at pushing people in a more divergent uh, into more divergent ways of thinking. And then everything in between. You know, there's a, a really great one that I love around uh, the team health monitor, which if you're working on a project it's a very uh you know it's a very safe way we've identified about 10 characteristics of high performing teams and within 30 minutes the team can self-assess how they're going against those 10 characteristics the voting is simple thumbs up for we're awesome thumbs sideways for we're not doing great thumbs down for we we're not very good at this and then very quickly you get a very easy heat map of where the team has self-assessed that they're not as effective as they could be and what what's good about that is as i said it's a team health monitor the team have done it it's not a manager appraising them the team's done it and they can quickly identify areas that they may need to improve uh in order to be a more effective team and those happen again depends on the team every two weeks every four weeks every six weeks but certainly not at the end of a 12-month project sure
0: yeah you want to sort of have that sort of you know adaptive cycle where you can actually go back and
1: well correct I mean, you know if if you're only getting feedback, you know e- either in a in a performance kind of sense or as a team if you're only getting feedback once every 12 months, how are you supposed to ever improve? Like it's it's like oh great thanks for telling me that something I did 11 months ago I could have got better at i've had no opportunity to try and fix that and so again something like the team health monitor is a is a really amazing way to actually uh course correct much earlier in the piece interesting segue to something i heard you talking about
0: it's something i've been thinking about a lot lately as a leader in management roles or leadership roles we often don't get great feedback from our teams how do you go about <laughs> getting feedback from your teams and 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 i suppose compiling that and learning
1: Well, there's a, uh, I'll maybe start with my personal uh, way that I I like to get my feedback is, um, again, something we touched on earlier, that psychological safety. You need that because, and I spend time basically humanizing myself as a leader. So I share a lot quite openly. Every week I will share what's top of mind and that's just a simple page of what I'm thinking about. And things that I've talked about have been Uh, I signed up for an insurance app in America and it was awesome and so I shared screenshots because I was like this is awesome the content's awesome the design's awesome the experience was awesome Uh, all the way through to how I think about uh, OKRs at the the company Uh, but I'm sharing things about myself every week and I'm very open with sharing about my family and so that's all to try and humanize myself as a leader so that people understand who I am and I'm not just a manager's manager or the boss of a boss. And so the reason to do that, coming to a point about feedback, is so that people feel a bit more comfortable giving me feedback. And so something I do with my direct reports every three months is I'll send them a a simple survey, which is asking them three simple questions around uh, how can I... tell me something that I've done well for you this quarter, tell me somewhere where you'd have liked more support, and then just basically anything else. So it's very simple, and I get them to share those those uh, those results or those that feedback with me, but then what I do, I anonymize it if people don't feel comfortable with me sharing it, but then I share that back to my entire organization. So I basically say, this is what I've been told this quarter, <laughs> This is he- and then this is what I intend to do in order to get better as a leader. And the reason I think that's important is, it's important to model the behavior that you want with your teams. And not everyone may feel com- as comfortable like sharing the, their performance feedback, but I certainly am not perfect. Yeah. I'm not a robot. And, uh, and I want people to understand that I have areas that I'm trying to improve on, and then I need everybody else to hold me accountable to that. Okay? The, that's the personal way of getting feedback. That Atlassian, uh, we've recently changed... Uh, how we do feedback across the company so that it's no longer, uh, so that we actually assess your performance inside of a team. So typical kind of performance review is, you know, your manager appraising you as how you performed against key competencies in your role. We've actually changed our performance review so that it's that, that's obviously important. Are you doing the job that you should be doing? Uh, but also how are you helping make your team a better team And so that's to try and get rid of just, you know, having brilliant individuals who are not necessarily, you know, uh, good at, uh, at contributing to a team environment. And then the third level is how are people performing against our values? So are they living and breathing our values day in, day out? And again, that that's something that we have those conversations every quarter with with our individual with the people that work for us and we talk openly about how are they performing on their individual basis and then against their team and we kind of write those things down and share them with our with 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 everyone
0: it's great to have that level of transparency and i think if you're 100% correct if the team one can just see you as a human and, and also fallible and also learning, right? There is that sense that, oh, the boss knows everything. Well, they, they definitely don't think that. But, you know, that, that, there's that yeah. dichotomy there. Yes. So be able to yeah, humanize yourself to the point where
1: I'm still learning as well. That's right. I mean, the humanizing, I think, is incredibly important. Like the topic on my talk was about scaling. And I think if you're in a scaling company, it gets more important. Because before, before too long, you are literally the boss of a boss of a boss. And, and whilst you may, like, I'm just an individual, I'm a normal person, but somebody uh, in my organization doesn't necessarily see me as that. And so you need to make the effort to humanize yourself, I think, as you scale. And then part of that humanizing, is, as you said, it, it's showing that, hey, I'm not perfect, you know, I have these things that I'm trying to get better at, and please help me. And I mentioned I share that back with my team every quarter, I also do that every year. Like we we still, even though we do check-ins through the year, we still obviously have annual performance reviews. And so my boss gave me my feedback, you know, at the end of last year. And then I shared that back with my team. <laughs> and I was like, this is what my boss told me, said about me. And again, I think that that openness is incredibly important uh, just on so many different levels, you know. Openness, open collaboration, open sharing of feedback is going to, create better levels of accountability and then more trust in your teams. And then trust is really the cornerstone of any effective uh, team.
0: Yeah, and they're all trust building to, to have that transparency. I'm, I'm conscious of your time, a, a couple more quick questions. I've heard you say before that design is 90% communication, 10% work. You yeah.
1: Explain that. Explain that, yeah, that's a good one. That's a that's a personal belief in the uh, and where that came from really is uh, my first job uh, as a backpacker was in a call center. So I didn't start, that was my first job, as in a call center. But what was incredibly important about that for me as a person was that talking to people on a phone when you can't see them and trying to either A, convince them to buy something or B, they're calling in and they're asking, how do I set up this cable TV box? You have to actively listen you have to communicate incredibly effectively and and you have to be very empathetic to people and i think that really taught me early on in my career the importance of communication and you're right like i i've seen many amazing designers produce amazing work but then they've really failed at communicating the customer problem that they were trying to solve and how their solution solved that and i and one of the biggest things that i coach and counsel and mentor uh, people in my team on is that often the the biggest thing that's, that's going to help propel them in their career is effective communication, and so effective communication comes about from actively listening, from working on your written communication to your verbal communication, and and it's not that you can get away with doing bad work. I don't, I don't think you can. Like I just think that people often overlook the importance of effective communication in the in the modern workplace because again. As I mentioned, future of teamwork is here. I work with people who work from home offices in North America, New York, India, Sydney, different time zones, and so being able to effectively communicate to them either via our own tools like Confluence or Jira or Trello or Slack or over Zoom, that's powerful. and often people miss that. And as I said, I, so yeah, I think communication is or design is 90% communication and then 10% doing the work. But 10% is incredibly important though no, I, I want to emphasize that. that um, you, you know. Outside of going to work at a call center, how, how do you think people
0: can improve those active listening skills?
1: So there's a really good quote, um, argue like you're right, listen like you're wrong. And I think that is how you can improve your listening by listening like you're wrong uh one of the other things that i've done i'm a talker i i I enjoy talking and socializing with people but i've had that feedback that sometimes i can i can dominate a meeting so one of the things that i've learned a number of years ago was to make sure that i'm creating space for people in that meeting and to create space i don't talk until and I've been purposeful around being the last person in the room to speak uh, or I've given myself a couple of basically chips and said I'm only allowed to give play two chips in this meeting okay and those two chips are when I when I'm allowed to talk and so I think there's a there's a number of different tactics that people can people can use to just get better at listening and uh, actually the last one is you know often uh, when somebody's communicating something you'll then a good way to actually uh, make sure that you've heard them is to pause and say let me just replay what I, what I think I heard and then you replay what you think you heard in your own words and then the person gets a really good opportunity to say no or yes and or you missed this bit
0: yeah okay I heard another great technique um, around if people are having an argument, but it doesn't need to be in that situation, but it, forming a debate and then making people fought, swap sides. So if you were debating one side of a debate, actually making me uh, debate your side and seeing it from
1: the other person's perspective. That's an amazing technique. We practice that. I, I don't know. Maybe that's in our playbook. I'm not sure. But that's definitely something that we do is it? it's like okay now you're going to swap positions and you're going to argue for that and you have to like you have to um, put yourself in that person's shoes and actually see why because again it's about reframing your own thinking and stopping you have that narrowness of thinking by forcing you to take a different position and I think that's a really good technique to use beautiful mate well I know you've got to uh, get off of some speed dating speed so. dating Paul's <laughs> best I don't know what that is but uh, I'm going to go talk to people about think about humanizing yourself as a leader I think that's really? what I'm talking to them about. beautiful
0: well that, that's that's a great uh, segue from Segway. us so thank you so much if people want to find out more about you or what you do is
1: there somewhere online they can, they can find you or? they can always find me on LinkedIn Perfect. I write on Medium on the Atlassian Design mining Atlassian publication Uh, so yeah there's a few places online that I can find beautiful mate thank you so much for your time thank you cheers mate thanks
0: hey everybody Sam here again thank you so much for listening thank you to PauseFest for having us along last year and allowing us to have that conversation with Alistair if you want to find Alistair just google him Uh, he's got a Medium account uh, as well as his LinkedIn and uh, PauseFest is happening this year online digital it is around about a month away, the 1st or the 12th of March. Tickets are still on sale now, so just head to pausefest.com.au. And as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it amongst your friends and colleagues. be much appreciated, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers, bye.